0: Hello and welcome to another exciting episode of the RPG Academy podcast. I am Michael, and tonight I have brought along a very special guest co-host, Quinn, from the Swallows of the South podcast, proud member of the RPG Academy Network. Quinn, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing very well, Michael. How are you? I am doing well as well. As much as I could be, we got back from the faculty retreat yesterday so I kind of have the same con hangover that you would have from any other sort of three-day gaming convention.
1: Yeah, that can be pretty brutal.
0: Yeah, so I'm really tired, but uh, it was a wonderful time. I had so much fun, and you know, I'm energized by that social connection between all the different people in the network that were able to go, and some of our VIPs and fans from the shows got to show up. Uh, it's just it's an amazing experience. And I, I want more people to go, so hopefully as, as we progress maybe next year a few more network people can go and a few more fans can go. But, uh, but yeah, I'm doing really, really well other than being a little bit tired. Yeah, sounds like it was definitely worth it, so. Absolutely, I'm so glad that we've kind of made this a tradition, and again, fingers crossed it, it continues. Absolutely. Uh, so tonight you and I are going to talk about what I'm calling the player's perspective. So this is gonna be faculty meeting 125. And we're gonna talk about some of the differences from the player's point of view, when you are playing what I will use quote unquote, a regular game versus a game that is being recorded for an audience or even streamed live for an audience. So just that concept of what you owe the table in front of you compared to what you owe the audience that might be watching or listening later. But before we get too far into things, we always like to take a step back and talk about why we're here. So Quinn has joined me today so we can talk about our experiences with role-playing games, and we hope that through these conversations, we can share some of the experiences that we have gleaned from our many years of playing tabletop RPGs. But of course, we understand that the opinions we share and the advice we give may not work at every table every time, but there is one piece of advice that we feel is pretty universal. And Quinn, what is that one piece of advice?
1: If you're having fun, you're doing it right.
0: That is correct. So no matter what game you're playing, the system or edition, what rules you use, don't use or misuse, if you're having fun, you're doing it right. So with that out of the way, do we have any announcements tonight or today, I should say?
1: I'll say that right now, if you haven't listened to Swallows of the South, you've got a great opportunity to jump on in a off-season one-shot we're running in the Genesis system where we're taking a lot of my weird fantasy preferences and playing around with those in a near future cyberpunk aesthetic. So it's worth checking out. Uh, we're joined by John from the system mastery podcast. Who's become a regular on our cast. So if you enjoy their stuff, you might like what we're doing over here.
0: All right. Very, very cool. Now, are you still running this as the GM or you're a player in this? I am running this one as well. Okay. And are you familiar with Genesis, or is that like some like growing pain sort of situation?
1: I'm relatively familiar with Genesis. I ran some Fantasy Flight Star Wars games a couple of years ago, my group of players less so, so there's always some of those growing pains that you have as an entire table is acclimating to a new system, especially when you're
0: performing the game as opposed to just playing it. <laughs> yeah, well, and again, if they don't know the rules, then they don't know when you mess it up unless you tell them. Yep, that's uh, that's always my philosophy. Uh, so as for myself, by the time this comes out, it's probably going to be late April, maybe even May before we get to this one. So the Catacon Kickstarter will have already closed by then. I'm happy to report that as of this point, we've already funded. We have a few more sponsorships that are coming in. So I'm hoping that we'll end somewhere around 7000. You know, more would be nice. Less would be OK. But that's what, I'm, what I think we're going to do. Uh, and then the next big thing is going to be a catacon line. So May 18th through the 20th, we're going to do an online convention where we've got a bunch of volunteer GMs from within the network as well as outside the network that are going to be running games over the Internet. So Roll20, Fantasy Grounds, or just Google Hangouts or whatever people want to do. And we're going to be selling tickets to those seats, to those games for like eight to ten bucks. and then after that on august 1st is when we're going to open up the eventbrite store for regular badges, gm badges, vendor badges, demo tables and all that rest. So, I am still definitely hip deep in a catacon stuff, but now that the gm masterclass series is over, I have a whole backlog of podcasts that we got to start getting out. So, it's going to be a little hectic for me for the next month or so. <laughs> awesome. So one last thing before we jump into the topic is let's make sure people know how they can get a hold of us. So if someone wants to get a hold of you, Quinn, uh, what's the best way for them to do that? The best place to find me
1: is on twitter.com at monkeypiequinn. That is M-O-N-K-I-P-I-Q-U-I-N-N.
0: All right. And do you have like an email for the show or something like that?
1: Yeah. If you have anything that you would like to address to me in long form, you can find me at... Swallows of the South at gmail.com.
0: Excellent. And as for myself, I am at the RPG Academy on Twitter and pretty much everywhere else. If you search for the RPG Academy and you find something, it's probably me. And you can email us at the RPG Academy at gmail.com. So again, just the RPG Academy. Just built my whole life around that now. So brand unification,
1: I think is what they call it.
0: At the, that's the positive spin on obsessive compulsive issues. But uh anyway. Let's move on. So let's talk about this specific. We're going to jump into it. Player perspective. Now, this sort of came about from some Twitter conversations that you and I were kind of involved jumping in and out Mm -hmm. of. And I apologize. I don't remember the person that initially sort of queried into Twitter about, you know, what is or is there a difference between playing for your friends at the table versus playing for an audience? And you certainly have some opinions about this. And so we thought it would be a good idea to talk about that. So we're going to dive in pretty quick, but the one thing I am going to say before we start is if you're, even if you're just playing for the people around your table, and I shouldn't say only, because that's what this game is about, you know, streaming and and podcasts and stuff have have certainly exploded in the last few years and become very popular. And if you follow Twitter, it seems like it's come become very integral to the hobby is that a lot of people are learning about the games through these and then going to game stores or going online and buying stuff. So We've sort of replaced the older cousin method of learning about RPGs. So they're very important. But at the end of the day, this game is designed to be played around a table with your friends. At least, more or less. Just go with me here. Don't argue about that. Just say, sure. But it's still a social game. And there's still an implied or explicit social contract that you're playing with your friends. Everyone should be having fun. If your fun overrides someone else's fun, that's not okay. And again, I'm a big advocate of session zero. Everyone take a drink. Me because that's, too. So you can work out any of these potential issues before they become issues. Like, what happens if Steve doesn't show up? Does someone else play his character or is his character not there? If Sarah's character dies, what happens? Does she come in at the same level? Does everyone get to loot her body? You know, is she going to be resurrected within the game system? Uh, where are we playing? When are we playing? Who's buying pizza? All those things that sometimes lead to problems Just talk about them first in session zero, get them all out of the way, or as many as you can think of, and you'll be surprised at how few problems you'll have because you've already discussed that. So, Uh with that sort of caveat already on the table, I'm going to turn it over to you, Quinn. As someone who performs both as a GM and as a player on Actual Pay Podcasts, what do you see as some of the core differences that you try to do or bring to the table when you're doing this?
1: Absolutely. So, I'm going to start with some much more pulled-back theoretical language that I think is actually helpful to frame this discussion. Sure. I think for most people, at most tables, when you're not performing, this isn't for posterity, it's not going to be edited, there's not an audience. You are engaging what I like to call process-oriented play. The events of play the interactions with the rules, what happens over the course of the session, each individual piece as the game moves along, is the reason that you're there. In my experience and my particular perspective on actual play is not process-oriented, but is instead what I like to call product-oriented play. You are performing a product that has certain goals intentions etc which shapes the way that you will engage with moment to moment play engagements with the rules etc etc in such a way that might mean you're avoiding things that would be enjoyable to engage with during process oriented play in the interest of creating a more tonally cohesive product that is designed specifically with a listener or a viewer in mind.
0: Okay, so a couple of things, and again, I may be completely off base. Feel free to say no, Mike, you're dumb. But but sort of the two things that came to me as as you were explaining that is some of that depends on why you are producing your show, and this may be getting too nitty gritty. But for I example, also think this is super important to talk about. Okay. So, for example, like when we do our shows called The Trials, we are specifically trying to highlight the game. Uh, you know, we, could, we can get around in improv, some of us poorly, some of us good, I'm pointing at Quinn, and just have fun without any rules whatsoever. So we don't really need a game to have fun. So when we do a trial, we are specifically trying to engage with the mechanics so that a, a listener who's interested in that system we'll get an idea of how that might play at their table. So a lot of times I will specifically make choices in that game just to do that. Like if my character has a particular ability I haven't used yet, even if it's not the right thing to do or the best thing to do, I'll be like, I haven't done that yet. Let's do that. Because I just want to, again, give the chance to showcase the the mechanics or how the, how the system works. Absolutely. And, and then the other thing that I would say from just a performer standpoint is I am probably more likely and i think me as a person i've actually changed my my habits a lot so i'm almost now always performance thinking i'm a lot less likely to get boggled down by minutiae or to even try to like push against the plot like if i know that we're supposed to go into the temple in a regular game i might be like i don't know why i want to go there let's talk about that or i might you know waste time If I know we're on a show and I can know we're supposed to go in the temple, I'm going to find a reason to go in that temple. I'm going to make it as easy as possible on the DM or GM because I don't want to stress them out. I just want everybody to focus on trying to have fun within the framework of the game. Mm -hmm. So am I anywhere on base with what you were talking about?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I super agree with you. I think that, for example, if you look at the episodes that we're releasing right now, our Genesis game, Chanel is playing a character who has a sort of like hardened exterior, she's very much in it for herself but there's an understanding that as this is being performed the resistance to engaging with things is sort of tokenistic it is there so that at the slightest offer she turns that away and says okay well I'll go do it like maybe grumble a little bit but She's in for the ride. She's doing that for dramatic reasons, not for any sort of other reason. She's in for the story that's being told. And I think that talking about the trials and that sort of thing is very important because when I run shows, the content I primarily produce is stuff that is built with an ear toward being essentially an audio drama with the pretense of a game happening around it. And that is not everyone's preferred method of engaging with actual play. Some people actually really enjoy it as a way to key in on mechanical touchstones or to learn systems. You shouldn't be listening to my stuff if that's what you want. (laughs) We are playing an incredibly dense system in Exalted 3rd Edition, and we do everything we can to skirt around it in such a way that those mechanical systems we interact with are smooth for listeners to understand what's happening in the story more so than it's important that we feel people understand necessarily all of the through line of mechanical interactions. But that method of engagement as of actual play as a teaching tool or as a reference for games as they exist in play is super valid. So I want that to be sort of known to the audience that's the perspective that is informing a lot of the stuff that i'm saying about how i perform play or how i go about performing play at my tables
0: sure and again totally agree with that I, for me i usually i kind of break podcasts uh actually podcasts into like three general categories maybe even four But there's the one we talked about with the trials where we're trying to showcase the mechanics, not necessarily teach them. Like we're not talking to the audience like in this situation, you do this. We're just getting into those situations and letting the DM manage them. So you're just kind of learning like, okay, well, when they try to jump the pit in this game, this is what they did. And when they got knocked down and they almost died, this is how they figured out if they were dead. Right. It's
1: not an out-and-out step-by-step tutorial, but listening to it, you can sort of intuit and internalize at least a sense for the mechanics.
0: Absolutely. And then the next, again, they're not like weighted, but like the next tier up in my mind is the, I just want to know what it's like to be around your table type of play. And these are the shows that don't do a lot of editing, at least not for content. You know, They'll have the rules discussions. They will have the off-tangent jokes. They will have the throw in, you know, uh, inside jokes that no one else gets. They leave them in because they want you to feel like I'm hanging out with these people. And that's a great show type. And a lot of shows do that. And a lot of shows do it really well. The next level up is more what you're talking about, where it's more of an audio drama. And unless you knew that you're playing Exalted, it's possible someone would listen to that and not realize it. Mm -hmm. Because the mechanics have been minimized to the point that they're inconsequential to the story as a whole. And, And I do a lot... Same thing like in our campaigns. I'll cut out a lot of mechanics. Like we might spend ten minutes trying to figure out a rule, but that you'll never hear that. And sometimes right. I'll just cut out even rolls. Like so, in the audio, you'll just hear I'm going to try to jump over the pit. The next thing you'll hear was me saying, "Okay, you've cleared the pit. What you know?" But there might have been a dex check in the middle, but it wasn't important to the story, so I got rid of it. And yes, absolutely. The- and then the last one is, what I would say, is like, and I'll I use one shot as an example, it's just pure improv. People are there, I mean, even more than like an audio drama, this is just having fun around the table and there might be a game involved, but sometimes you can't tell.
1: Absolutely. And I think that there's a lot of validity in each type of form. Like you've said, something that I think is, for me, a very important thing with an eye toward production with something like uh, an audio drama is understanding as both a performer and a producer, just because something exists, like on a file, just because something has been taken from your mouth into a microphone and put onto a computer, does not mean that thing is sacred. It does not mean that that thing is inviolate. And sometimes, you have to kill it. Oh yeah. And my personal method involves discussing... I'm a huge fan of Rule Zero, and I think that for something like actual play that I engage in, that's even more important, because things like production voice are super important in developing and conveying successful audio drama through podcasting so you need everyone on the same page in terms of how many dalliances are we going to make like how important is it that we cut around certain things or really delve into certain issues something that i think is also a very important difference that i will engage in and i haven't GM'd actually, a long-running game at a table since I've been running a podcast for a while. Fun fact, actually, one of the best ways to get a consistent game group going is to make them beholden to an audience. (laughs) (laughs) But that being said, I will be a lot more explicit going into a session, and between sessions, I'm almost always asking questions of players, like via a Facebook chat or something, to get a sense for what They're interested, what they're thinking about, but then I'll also be very upfront at the start of a session as to things like, what are our dramatic goals this session? Like, what do we actually need to get done? Not presuming outcomes, not saying how things are going to go, but what are, like, issues that we need to actually address in the time that we're sitting down to record to shape expectations and... I also do a lot of mid-cycle sit-downs with folks, talking to them in a way that I might not at a regular game about things like character arc. Like, where's your character? Where do they want to be, or where do you want them to be by the end of the season? And, like, how are we getting there? And then checking in midway. Okay, so how how do we feel things are going? Is there anything we can do to push that more... Anything that I can do, situations I can present, so that we can sort of actualize that in a deeper or more intensive way than I might at a regular table. Again, I will say that these conversations are not presuming outcomes either. They are simply conversations about desires, aims, and goals that we then let be shaped by the vicissitudes of actual play.
0: So one of the things that I I've I've realized about myself, the more I've done podcasting and the more opportunity I've had to play with a bunch of different GMs DMs and get to play with a bunch of different players who all bring something different to the table. I, I have found that I enjoy playing the way we play when we're recording more than the way I used to play when we didn't. And I don't know what that says about me necessarily but But what I've come to realize is that there's not a lot of difference now between when I play, quote unquote, a regular game versus when I play a game online or or recording because I enjoy playing that way. Now, you're talking a lot from like a GM or a producer standpoint. Mm -hmm. Uh, From a player standpoint, to kind of touch on that as well, I'm a lot more focused on what my character is to the story. Mm -hmm. I'm not self-serving. I'm trying to serve the whole. So, Mm -hmm. you know, anyone who's listening to any sort of You know, dramatic storytelling. There's, there's things that you come to expect, particularly from like a Western uh, civilization. You know, three act story arcs. uh, You know, betrayals and uh, revenge and all that kind of good stuff. So, in a regular game, I keep using regular. I don't hate, I hate that word, but what I mean is like a at home game. I guess. Mm -hmm. I I might have my character building towards a moment, and then the next session have nothing to do with my moment we've we've got on a different character or we had somebody miss so we went on a side quest so that we didn't miss, you know, Sarah couldn't make it. So instead of finishing our temple run, we decided to go and do this other thing for three hours and, you know, loot some goblins or whatever. But if you're an audience listening to that and you're listening to what you would kind of consider that audio drama, you're going to feel really weird and probably confused if we feel like we're building towards this moment and then we take a two hour or two episode tangent into some other territory, unless it's handled very well, maybe edited around or, you know, you release that as like a bonus track on the side. Mm -hmm. But there are certain expectations that the audience has that you have to, I feel like, be aware of as both the player and as the DM. And I've also got to the point where I try to give other players the spotlight a lot more, where this isn't my scene. I don't need to be involved here. You go, and I'll just be quietly doing my own thing, where in a regular game, I'd probably keep trying to introduce myself or get get some attention and that kind of stuff
1: exactly and no matter what you're doing again going back to that sort of social contract role-playing games are a social game but the dynamic of that changes a lot for me at a as a player at a table for a lot of the reasons that you've outlined and some of it is that process versus product orientation where If I'm just here for the process of doing this, maybe I will chime in to scenes where I'm not carrying as much of the narrative weight, just so I'm not feeling like I should be checking my phone or just even just getting invested in what they're doing, but also feeling like, but I'm not playing. (laughs) Where at a recording, you should be doing as much as you can to bolster the voices of those around you be very very sort of teamwork oriented and that way everyone lifts each other up and you're able to sort of follow those dramatic threads in narratively and dramatically satisfying ways that might have meant as a player of a game at a table you spent more time than you might have liked sitting quietly on the sidelines
0: Sure, I'm I'm with you on that. I uh, again, the thing that came to my mind there is, is I'm I'm bad about this. Even when we record, I'm bad with this. Is I will try to quip, you know, like I, especially if we're playing a game that's kind of funny. It's like I, I'll think of something you should have said, or maybe something like an NPC in the crowd, like "Hey, you're an idiot," and I'll throw those in because I think they're funny. But if you're recording the game, not always appropriate. But on the other side of that, sometimes we'll redo a scene or a moment, you know, particularly if like if there's audio issues, someone sneezes or talks over somebody. Or, again, I make a quip when I shouldn't have. We can say, OK, hold on, you know, audio crap. Let's all be quiet. And you say that again. But there's also times when we've got to a big moment and someone gives their one liner and we're all like, that wasn't very good. We'll brainstorm around the table for a couple of minutes and then we'll just retake that so that it sounds perfect for the character, which I would never do in an at-home game.
1: Yeah, so both of those things I think are super important. One thing that changes the actual feel of going through a game session is when you need to stop and be like, okay, we need to retake that, or you were chatting when the dice were rolled. I need everyone to be quiet. We can take the result that we got right here. That's fine. But I do need a clean take on you actually rolling those bad boys. (laughs) And then there have been several times where a character is like, okay, so what do you want out of this scene? Or what are you trying to do here? And then I swear the day that I realized that during recording, I can just turn off the recording and we just discuss things completely (laughs) off microphone and then come back when we're ready was a very powerful moment. Because sometimes you will... Be like, okay, so yeah, you're trying to, like, you want to have your big, like, comeback moment here. You want to dunk on this person, but you need to take a minute to sort of collect yourself and figure out what exactly line you want to take. So there might be some discussion about character traits between both of the characters in the scene, like, suggestions or, like, kind of workshopping things around the table, and... At a process-oriented game, that drops things to such a dead halt that it can be very difficult to sort of re-instantiate the flow of play. Oh, yeah. But, and this can be contradictory-seeming, but sometimes by engaging in a fits-and-starts sort of process, you create a more fluid and coherent-sounding product in the end because you're able to do certain things justice. And that is a part of why I say that the A part of AP is only a little bit actual. There's a lot more actuality to it than something completely scripted. I I'm following the flow of play. I don't presume outcomes any of that stuff. But there is a lot more sort of staging that can happen if something big needs to happen
0: so the one thing that i would say there because i can imagine some people who are like oh wow i didn't i never knew that or i didn't want to know that i wanted to to believe that these players and characters that i've you know fallen in love with that it's a more natural thing some shows maybe not most the ones i've been a part of but the benefit that i would give that is particularly if the moment's emotional I am more likely to drop out of character and react as Michael where if we take a moment and take a beat, I can go, okay, Michael wants to tell this person to go pound sand, but Aramie, who's trusting and naive, how would she react to this? And let me gather my thoughts and let me collect those so that when I am back onto the microphone and I'm talking in character, it it fits and it's not disingenuous to the character as established absolutely, something that is
1: I think super important to that end is emotional or dramatic scenes, and you talked a lot about this in the master class with Jim. there's a natural reaction of people to want to cut the tension with jokes, and that's fine, like especially like at a table when Sometimes you need to cut the tension, because otherwise it can... There can be unpleasant bleed, it can be a not-ideal moment, and even if those happen at the table while you are recording, I will cut those to maintain tone. Players might have an aside really quick about something or other in order to make themselves feel better about how intense a situation has gotten, but I don't leave that in the audio because I want the audience to experience the constant ratcheting of that tension
0: upward and upward and upward until finally it resolves. And if you, you know, if you watch any sort of movie a lot, I'm, I'm a, I'm sort of a movie aficionado. At least I like to think mm-hmm. that I am. I watch a lot of movies. There's a lot of interesting behind the scenes information that you can get particularly today, like on Blu-rays and that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. There's a lot of elements that don't come into a movie until it's edited. Mm-hmm. things that may not have been intentional that it's not until you know the the director or the editor or whatever producer they're they're looking at all the footage and they see you know there's this through line that wasn't scripted but it's there and we can highlight it if we remove this scene if we add this scene in here and we can move things around and i don't know that many actual plays do a lot of that but some of them do some of that
1: Absolutely. and i certainly
0: certainly have in, in my you know, production of episodes, I've certainly cut out whole scenes Mm -hmm. that were great, that were funny. I've cut out so much stuff that that makes me laugh, but it's not right for that episode, it's not right for that moment, and if it's not right, it gets cut. Right, I have
1: literal hours and hours of bloopers, because Swallows is a relatively dramatic show, but we have a bunch of people coming to the table with comedy backgrounds, And sometimes we let those comedy things say, especially if they're based in character, but there's a lot of stuff that is outside of that or scenes where we're spinning our wheels, we aren't getting anything done. You just take that and you throw it in the bloopers because someday it'd be nice to release to let people know how funny you are, but it doesn't actually add anything to a scene. And another fun fact about the magic of editing and I find that this is particularly helpful in mechanically dense situations, is you are no longer beholden to the linear flow of time. You can chop and cut and reorder things in ways that make them more comprehensible as a series of actions than you might have actually emerge from following like the rigid mechanical step-by-step of interacting with the game's systems. So, they say this in film and television a lot, but the product does live or die by the edit. And sometimes it sucks when you cut things. I've got... There's a very strange web of criteria that one, as an editor of something, needs to weigh. Like, what is the product that I'm making... How important is this thing to maintaining that tone or contradictory to that tone versus what's the value add, for example, of me leaving in this joke? How much time does it take? How much strain does it put on the diegesis? And sometimes I can't actually articulate and tell you why or why not. I cut something or left something in. It can be a little bit nebulous, but it
0: feels right. Oh, and again, I, I think we we're we're getting to the point where we're talking a lot. I feel like from like an editor standpoint or producer, or GM. That's true. And I do want to, I do want to focus it back on the player. But mm-hmm. I will say, from the editor standpoint, you know, in our show, I try to cut out a lot of the ums and the ahs, but sometimes I'll leave one in just because it feels weird if you don't have any of them. And it's like you know, there's no meth. It's not like every fourth one. It's just as I'm listening, I'm like, I think that um sounds good there so i'll leave it
1: yeah before we pivot back to the players i think that i cut probably 80 percent, and i leave in 10 to 20 just because it's important that things feel real and this is something as a player and as a game master i like to keep in mind when doing something like an audio drama what i'm pursuing and what i hope the things that i put out are the sort of platonic ideal of a game session. It is what. Ten years from now. You will remember. This thing as having been. All of the sort of like. Bumps and scrapes of. Having to stop and look up rules. Or whatever. Are scraped away. It's sort of that pure process. And that pure emotional feeling. Of going through that thing. With your friends. That something that as a player I have found useful is actually spending time to do chemistry-building exercises with your castmates before and around something like a recording. And that can be super helpful at a regular table too, especially if you're bringing on someone new, just sort of break the ice, get the flow going. But sometimes it can feel integral to spend some time building rapport in chemistry if you're going to be doing this with a partner because you need to know that you can trust them because if you can't trust them you can't be as vulnerable as you need to be
0: oh absolutely and that's something we've started to do uh on our show if you listen to detention we've we've added a couple improv games in there because they're fun and funny but uh for wrought iron we often will start with a improv game before we start recording so, like, I've noticed about myself, like, I go to conventions fairly frequently when I can these days, and you know me somewhat. Mm-hmm. I'm not a quiet person. I'm not necessarily a shy person, but I've noticed about myself that when I go into a convention game, I'm usually very quiet for, like, the first 20 minutes to half hour because I'm trying to feel out where I belong in this. Am Absolutely. I going to be
1: the— Am I I the
0: funny guy here? Am I the rules lawyer guy? Am I the take charge because we're not getting anywhere guy? Am I the DM's helper? Until I figure that out, I'm kind of quiet. On an actual play podcast, you can't have one of your primary players quiet for half an hour at the beginning of every session.
1: Right. You do not have the luxury of being able to read the room. You need to have it read by the time you're starting your recording, but... I take a lot of value at a table that I don't know that I'm coming into at something like a convention. Taking a minute, figuring out where everyone's at, what they're enjoying about playing, and then leaning into those elements as opposed to other things that I might otherwise lean into. And, yeah, developing that chemistry
0: ahead of a recording means that you're not going to have to struggle with that. So let's let's pivot hard. And let's go back and kind of maybe rehash some of this strictly from the player standpoint. Mm-hmm. So we, we, we've decided that we're going to be part of an actual play. We're going to assume that we have a producer, we have an editor, and we have a GM. Maybe that, that's the same person. Usually mm-hmm. it is. But let's often. Say that it's often. But we've agreed to be on an actual play like myself. I had no improv training Mm-hmm. And I still don't really have any improv training, but I do a lot of improv-like activities because I role-play so much now, and I role-play with other people who are improv improvers. So how are you going to approach session zero? How are you going to approach your character's place in the story? And how are you going to approach game-by-game game moments where you don't feel like your character is part of the story properly, or your arc isn't getting enough time, or you have disagreements with the other players? So I'm trying to figure out how that would be different for the player than someone else. Right.
1: So something like a session zero, not only do you want to talk about how the expected flow of play is going to go, you know, are we eating pizza for the love of God? Don't eat it on the microphone.
0: We had one episode where we were eating popcorn. Oh, that was awful.
1: Yeah. Uh, Your editor will find you and murder you but you also want to talk about things like what is the tone of this show? How much table talk are we expected to engage in? You know, where do you want me to push? Where do you want me to pull back? And it helps to be extra upfront about your character and what you want out of them. Sometimes with games, there is a, especially if a character has some sort of Secret or thing that they're carrying around with them at a process oriented game, the player might feel like they should keep them to that keep that to themselves, and I'm not sure if I agree with that a hundred percent of the time either way, I'm actually more likely to share my secret so that we can engage in escalating dramatic irony around it, but I think that it's especially important that the other people that you're going into a project like this with know those things so that they can help heighten and bring those things out from a moment-to-moment perspective super don't be afraid to stop and ask questions or clarify intent so that you can perform the best you can it's like a director calling cut on a scene and then the actor being like Yeah, but what do I, like, but what does my character want here? Like, (laughs) what's my motivation? Right, what's my motive? Exactly. Because that can help you clarify, you know, you shouldn't be asking your GM, what's my motivation? But maybe you should be telling your GM what your motivation is and figuring out, does that mesh with the scene that we're trying to roll out here? Because of editing and because this is a product, you gain a lot more from pressing pause than you do at a standard quote unquote game. So don't be afraid to do something like that. Because it can help everybody. And you know, disputes can be one of those things if character or if players aren't getting together, if there's an uncomfortable character dynamic that's emerging that people don't like. It's also super important to talk about that. And to talk about in like, a long-running format, how are we going to ensure that this change sticks? Like, what are we going to do to make this happen? And sometimes, if it's like, oh, well, my character's not getting enough screen time or what have you, that can suck, and hopefully your GM can work something in and talk to you about... Finding some hooks to keep your character motivated because, as a group story, even if things are focused on another character, they shouldn't be present. There should be no characters present with no motivation or no hooks into anything. That's not great either. And especially like big conflict, the kind of stuff that can end games, you gotta try to talk it out just like you gotta do. At a regular table, and it can really, really suck, but you also need to know, just like at a regular game, when to cut your losses, when you're in too deep, when this isn't what you thought you bargained for, and try to be flexible as much as you can about transitioning out. You know, if you can try to give some head, try to give a heads up so that you can give a somewhat narratively satisfying bow on a departure. That is super helpful. But I also will never ask someone to endure undue psychological distress or duress because you're making a product together. Take care of yourself.
0: Absolutely. So <clears throat> there's quite a few things there that you touched on that I want to kind of inj- interject my thoughts and maybe we can have a, some further discussion. Absolutely. Uh, the first one, I'm we'll start, back and we'll go back to the editor standpoint just for a second. I have done this myself, and I'm not saying I have not done this. I've absolutely done this. But if I'm giving advice to someone new who's thinking about starting a podcast, don't record your first episode and then put it out the next day. Record several sessions and see what's working. Because you might have two sessions in and realize, you know what? Sarah's not right for this table, so we're not going to have Sarah participate anymore. And you've got four episodes with Sarah that now you have no way to make sense. So play some games, get comfortable, and then start recording.
1: Yeah. I will also tell you right now, if you're thinking about starting a podcast of any sort, six months from the time you record your first episode... You will hate your first episode more than you've hated anything in your life, because you will have actually started to internalize and learn certain things, probably develop an editorial voice. That's not a reason to go and scrap everything that you've done, but that is something to be acutely aware of. And definitely, you want to develop a backlog, you want to develop chemistry, you want to know what the soul of your product is before you start immediately cutting and putting it out because most projects like this fail within the first six months to a year. And if you're not aware of that, and if you're not preparing for and around that, you're giving yourself that much more to trip over.
0: Absolutely. And just to bring it back around to like a, a the regular or the common entertainment industry, movies go through multiple rewrites. They go through changes at the t- at the day. You'll have a table read before anything happens, and you're constantly refining before you ever put anything on film. And then when you do it on film, you might change things. Again, you can use editing to move things around. Comedians who go on tour and they record a special for Showtime or HBO, they have worked through that material for about a good year in diff- different segments and different clubs before they ever record that actual special. You know, unless you're dealing with high level improv trained people, you're not going to get gold just by saying go. Now, you might want to record the not gold because that's kind of fun, too, is, you know, there's some fun in failure. So that might be okay for you, but you're going to make changes. And if you give yourself a few sessions to work through that and then start the actual show, you're going to be so much more ahead of the curve.
1: And there's no shame in getting your sea legs. And doing stuff, even if it's never going to be released or only released as a bonus, you're getting comfortable with things like mic presence. You're getting comfortable with the idea of performing. I know for myself, if I were to go start Swallows all over again, I probably would have made things more tonally consistent because we hit our stride at about episode 9 of the main series, but it took us a minute to get to that upswing And that upswing is a commitment that listeners have to go through before they figure out the actual identity of the thing they're listening to. And that makes it hard for the audience
0: to onboard themselves. So um, I want to talk a little bit about secrets. Mm -hmm. Because I've had this argument or this conversation several times on Twitter. And I am wholeheartedly in in the arena, the corner, that players should not have secrets but characters can. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there are a lot of people agree with that. Some people don't. I think the reason that I'm so wholeheartedly on that is because I think of it from a actual play standpoint, not from a around the table standpoint. Because if I'm playing with just my friends around my table and I'm secretly a drow or I'm secretly the prince or I'm, I'm the assassin that we're actually chasing, that could be a lot of fun for me to enjoy that. But it's all my pleasure. No one else, except maybe the GM who's in on it, knows that I'm having a good time. That does not work for an actual play. Unless you can have like an aside where that person, you know, it's almost like a play whisper where they go, I'm at the assassin. And you tell the audience, but you don't tell the other players. It doesn't work very well. So I'm always like, no, I want everyone to know everything because I think of it like a writer's room for a TV show. If half the writers in the room don't know that on the last episode we're going to have a reveal where it turns out the main character has multiple personalities and they're actually both the hero and the villain, there's going to be a lot of stuff in the middle that makes no freaking sense. Right. And I think
1: that in my experience with the stuff I've done, players in the actual place that I've engaged with have a lot more fictive responsibilities than they might at a process-oriented table, and that ties into that. It is more like a writer's room. I run games, but they are not like my specially crafted darlings, necessarily. They are something that live from the collective contribution and input on a lot of levels from the people I'm working with, in a way that is substantively different. And, to secrets, I would also say, from a non-actual play standpoint, just a a process-oriented game standpoint, sharing those secrets not only can help make for more satisfying play, there's a bunch of psychological research that actually indicates that things like spoilers tend not to be harmful to entertainment or enjoyment of fiction. I will still respect anyone's stance on spoilers. I won't go around spoiling things, but sometimes knowing what to expect sort of prepares you for that so you can engage with something, and the same can be true at a table, but I also think that that's really, really important because sharing that can be very, very important, because Session Zero is not infallible. You might not cover everything that's very important to cover. Some things might emerge during play, some things might be around secrets, and sharing that means that you can get buy-in from everybody because that is an important safety tool for making sure that you don't either upset someone or just, like, make someone have a (laughs) night, you know? Like, don't be that guy, don't be that person, don't be that girl. And table-to-table preferences are going to vary. I'm not going to yuck anyone's yums, But I am one of those, if anyone's ever seen me at a convention, I've got X cards, I talk about content in games before I run them, I want buy-in, I care a lot about safety, and those are tools that I engage with to ensure safety. And I'm certainly not saying that people who don't use those tools don't care about safety, but they might have other ways of negotiating it. So, from a table safety standpoint, I actually also favor sharing secrets because I think that that can be something you know, you read stories about games that have fallen apart. How often is it there was this one person who had this secret and finally it comes out and then everything falls apart.
0: Yeah, that's kind of when I talk about that from I guess what I'll say the process oriented game rather than saying regular game anymore is what is the best case and worst case scenario of that big secret is it never comes out. You managed to keep it hidden the entire time. Well, congratulations. You never actually had that secret. If it never comes out, it's as if it didn't exist. So there was really no point in having it anyways. If it does come out early, then it's not a big deal. Like, Oh, you're secretly evil. Okay. Well, we kill your character. Uh, If it comes out really late, you probably just pissed everyone else off and, and ended the campaign. Like, I don't think there's an upside that offsets the many, many possible bad things that can happen. But I, that's my opinion. I've, I've had the conversation on Twitter where people tell me about this four year campaign they had. And the last session this happened and everyone loved it. And it's the greatest game they've ever played. So my opinion is just that, but that's the way I like to play. Cause it is the way I feel.
1: Exactly. And I, 100 percent agree there's a bunch of potentially valid ways that people can engage with that stuff they're just not concerned with my own preferences and agendas in what i seek to derive from play and all of those reasons and agendas that people seek play are valid unless that's to hurt other people in which case go away
0: yes but but from a production standpoint i think it also makes more sense to share secrets because if you're a character with a secret that is integral to your character and like when i'm envisioning my character okay my character has this big secret i want that secret to come out at some point in time i want it yeah. to be dramatically appropriate i want it to have emotional weight and i want it to to change the trajectory of my character or maybe even the the campaign depending on the level of secret if all three players have something similar, it's not all going to work. So just like when you go around the table and go, I'm the fighter, I'm the wizard, I'm the rogue, you need to be like, I'm the character who has a redemption arc. Okay, I'm the character that does this. If your characters are not compatible, it could, I'll use could because I'm sure there's exceptions, it could limit your ability to tell each person's story to its completion because they interrupt each other rather than complementing each other.
1: Absolutely, and I'll pull a point of reference from one of my favorite movies of all time, Hot Rod, where they're introducing someone to their crew, and they say their name and a thing about themselves, and literally everyone says, like, my name is my name, and I like to party. (laughs) And you don't all want to be the guy who wants to party, because you're only going to... Or, like, you don't all want to be the secret lich, because (laughs) the third, fourth time, it turns out one of you was actually a lich, it becomes, unless this is exactly what you're going for, it strains credulity and seems almost parodical. And I would love to listen to an actual play that is parody-oriented, where everyone's secretly a lich. But chances are that's not why you made that choice in the first place.
0: Right. Yeah, Again, that was, that was decided ahead of time on purpose because they were building complimentary characters because they were actually not complementary, but the story they told made it that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the other thing I want to talk about was the where is it going? Mm. I think this is absolutely something that can happen at a process-oriented table and probably should more than it does. But from a production standpoint, absolutely. You may be 20 minutes into a role play scene and someone raised their hand and go, what's the point of the scene? Like, what, where are we going? What's the end game? Can we start over and make this a five minute scene and get all the information we need front loaded? Or, you know, at least move the move things around so that it's a little, so you don't have to edit it all to five minutes. You just do a retake. But I think that's perfectly acceptable. And it's, it's something that should be done a lot is I don't know why we're here right now from a story mm-hmm. standpoint i don't understand what we're getting from this npc or what we're supposed to get from this interaction that moves the story forward you need those moments so if you're not if you're not getting there absolutely call time out and be like uh what's going on
1: yeah what is this scene because not knowing can lead to spinning your wheels or if everyone has a different assumption everyone chasing that can create scenes that are just flat or weird or confused and it's not every time you move scenes you need to stop and be like well this is the scene where but a super important part of running a game and again games are a social thing part of playing a game is reading the table reading the people around you sort of keeping track of their like, emotional states, what's what's going on with them, and if you notice that everyone suddenly seems to either be confused, not wanting to step forward, or you can pick up on the fact that everyone's running in a different direction, there's no shame in calling timeout. And I will say that for process-oriented games as well, but sometimes at a process-oriented game, it's just fun to sit there and sort of spin your wheels, like yakking it up with each other in character for twenty, thirty minutes, and then re- only realizing at the end, like, oh yeah, we were supposed to go do like we we're supposed to go to the tavern and like return this ruby or whatever. But in a product, that doesn't fly as well, or you're asking your editor to really sort of mind that for the integral portion of the scene
0: right and that that's exactly what i'm thinking of is that if we don't call time out and we don't refocus ourselves all that's going to happen is when i edit the episode i'm gonna cut it all out anyways and i'm going to do a voiceover that says okay it's been two days and now you're at the temple and i'm going to cut out the 30 minute which might have been great it might have been so funny and i'm crying i'm peeing my pants but it makes no sense for the story and it's just going to get cut so right why not head that off at the pass and make your editor a lot happier? And as a player, maybe even be a little happier and say, okay, I feel more emotionally invested in this story because we're moving towards something and I know what that is.
1: Right, sometimes the retake can be so much more satisfying and that is something that I guess we haven't really said explicitly, even though we've talked a lot about the editorial process. As a player... Think about the editor. Don't only perform out to your audience, but think about editorial concerns. And you don't need to know everything that goes into editing. But in that prior example, if you realize you're 20 minutes into a scene and nothing's actually happened, don't be afraid to call for a mulligan.
0: Yep. Uh, Again, mic technique... Uh, which, again, I'm not trained. I've just done this so long now that I know that if I don't talk directly to the mic, it sounds bad, and I have to I have to spend more time editing it and trying to make it sound right, and then it sounds artificial because I've had to overproduce it. Uh, so I've just kind of learned that over time. But I still have some of my players who, you know, they only play once or twice a month at my table. When we record, they don't always have the best mic, you know, oh. discipline.
1: I can't tell you the number of times that I've had someone do this on a recording and then not say it back into the microphone. So I either just lose that if there's something else that distracts me from the immediate flow, or I have to stop and ask for a retake. Because you sound very distant. The microphones, at least that you and I use, uh, these these dynamic mics, they're not sensitive.
0: Gotta be right there.
1: You gotta be right up there, yeah.
0: Well, I'm recording in my basement right now, so if I had a sensitive mic, it's going to sound like garbage because you're going to hear the wife and kids upstairs walking. You're going to hear the furnace kick on. And, and so I have to have something that to get clear audio, I got to be right up in it. And that's because that's just the, the, you know, I'm not in a studio environment. I'm in a basement environment Mm -hmm. uh, with some moving blankets hanging down to try to try to dampen sound. So those are the things as a player, you got to try to be considerate to your, to your audience, to your editor, to your GM that talk into the mic and, you know, perform into the mic And I can't tell you how much time and effort I spend trying to level everyone's voices and try to make everyone Mm the same levels when they just don't talk to them. And I I do a lot of that with the mixing board. I try to do it ahead of time, but it doesn't always work. Yep. And and right now I have an episode of our Dark Discovery campaign, which is our Patreon only one, that I can't release until I have two people re-record three or four sentences each. Because I have to have them. The story don't make sense without them but I have to have them re-record them because all of them got buried in some different one way or the other. They weren't talking to the microphone or someone else talked over them or whatever. I need clean versions or I'm going to have to cut stuff and then it's not going to make any sense to the audience. They're not mm-hmm. going to know how we got to point A to point B. So I've been sitting on this episode for three weeks waiting for us all to get them back together just to re-record. Mm-hmm. And again, from a player, editor, GM standpoint, that's not good.
1: Right. And this is something that I will also say in terms of specifically that The way I set up and orient my microphones, it's basically impossible to actually look at everyone else at the table while you're performing. So sometimes you're going to be saying something directly to another character's face in the story, but you actually need to look at the wall up back behind you and do everything in your power not to turn your head, because you're going to mess up the audio. And that can be super awkward, and it can take time to get used to. Not doing that because it's so natural as a thing in human interaction
0: to turn and look at the person that you're trying to talk to. Absolutely. And those are things you don't think of unless you're trained as a performer already or, you know, you do this for a while and you start to realize that every time I, again, I look over at at John and I'm talking, it doesn't sound right. But when I'm talking to Sarah, sounds good. Oh, that's right. John's in front of me and Sarah's to the left or whatever I screwed up to whatever. Absolutely, it's something you may not think about. It's just one more consideration in your mind when you're performing rather than just playing. Mm -hmm. Uh, One of the other things I want to talk about from a player standpoint is understanding your place in the story. And this is something that can also be spoken to to the DMs and GMs of the world. And I'll share an example. I personally think... That our 13th age game is one of the best actual plays that we've ever produced. I think from a story standpoint, from role roleplay standpoint, there's just some amazing things happening. I know, having talked to some of my players, they don't feel that way. The audience does. Like, I, I did a poll recently on Twitter asking people, like, what is their favorite actual play we've ever done? And that was tied as the top. So our audience loves that actual play. But some of our characters didn't care for it a whole lot. And I'm trying to come to terms with why that was. And I think what I've realized, because, again, this was one of our first ones. I wasn't as educated as I am now. I knew in my head how the story was going to play out. And the first arc, which unfortunately is the only thing we ever ended up recording was the first arc, was very much about one character. The other two characters were very much side characters. But I knew that the second arc was going to change that but I didn't communicate that to the players because I was still in the normal DM mindset where I control everything and you're just playing in the world. So if you go back and listen, it is very clearly one person's story for 13 episodes and the other ones are just kind of there. And I could see as a player, that's probably not as much fun, but if I knew, okay, this is what we're doing. We're building an arc. Season two is going to be my season. You know, you still get to be in there, but it's going to be all about my story. Mm -hmm. Season three, then I'll, I bet they probably would have been able to buy in a little bit more, but they they were playing a game where they're like, why are we here? It's not our story.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And I've had similar things. Um, in Swallows of the South, Godwin is the central character for the first two seasons, but that shifts over time, and other characters start to come into focus. You start learning their stories, and the long arc of the show comes to prove that someone else is actually more the central character of this thing but everyone's getting time in the spotlight it just takes time to unfold that and remembering that you're in this for like the long game can be very helpful and communicating, communicating, communicating communicating Yep. you got a mouth you're in front of microphones to use it (laughs) you might as well talk about intent and what you're hoping to get out of it
0: Uh, And then sort of the last note that I took when you were going through that long series earlier uh, was to talk about the emotion of the scene and of the players. Mm -hmm. Have you seen The Last Jedi? Oh, yeah. Okay. So I don't want to spoil anything for anybody who might not have seen it, but there's a moment where Luke Skywalker is pretty emotional. There's something that happens in the story, and Luke is very emotional, and Mark Hamill is very emotional. And if you watch the the behind-the-scenes footage... After that scene is over, Mark Hamill continues to cry for like five minutes. Like the scene's over. They've called cut. But Mark Hamill got himself into a place that he was trying to perform in a mode and he needed, he knew Luke needed to be emotional. So he, I don't know. He thought about puppies dying. I don't know. But he got himself emotional. And when the scene was over, he wasn't able just to snap out of it. If you're building a production where you want to get your characters to certain emotional levels. Your players have to be there too. Understand that you may want to take a five minute break after that big moment where in a in a play a process-oriented game, we're gonna push right on through and all revel in it. But in a production, it's like, okay, let's all take five minutes, because that was heavy.
1: Yeah, that is actually super important. That's it in part why vulnerability and chemistry are super important, because if you're going to be doing emotionally intense scenes, You need to know that you're doing that without judgment. And if you don't stop after, and in some cases, actually like debrief or do whatever it is that you need to do to sort of like return to even keel so that you can move on to the next scene where your character's not in that emotional state, you can compromise the broader arc of that episode or whatever because you're carrying too much anger or sadness or whatever from an earlier scene and the season 3 finale of Swallows of the South ended with literally everyone at the table like weeping their eyes out (laughs) and a lot of that's still there on the microphone and then when we ended we all took time to like kinda return back into ourselves because when you're present for something like that it takes a minute and you don't want you don't want that negative bleed you don't want someone to carry something with them in a way that's not productive or not helpful or healthy you want people to be safe like i said safety is super huge and bleed is in my opinion a question of safety so you know talk it out make sure that you're all especially sometimes people don't know and it's a lot easier when you've got a bunch of people who have performance backgrounds. But if there's a scene where two of your player characters have a heated argument, where, like, it's really intense, you definitely want to make sure that people know that they're cool between each other. Like, that was that was all acting, especially if you're not used to acting like that. You don't want to be like, oh my god, does Brianna hate me? Like... Did I, did I do something wrong to her? Because chances are you didn't.
0: And then you definitely don't want to have, like, the anger shakes going into the next scene. So I'll share a, a stupid story. My wife, we, we dated for several years before we got engaged. Then we were engaged for several years before we got married. So we've been together for quite a long time. So we started dating in high school. We're high school sweethearts. I know it's disgusting and sickening as that is. And early on in our relationship, we were part of a church youth group. And we would, you know, what church youth groups do, we, you know, we did different things together. One one year we went to a lockout at a bowling alley and it happened to fall on April's Fool's Day. So this was like, God, 17 years ago, something at like this point. And we thought it would be funny if we pretended to fight and that we were breaking up just to make everyone, you know, think that we were breaking up. We got really mad at each other over that because we were like barbing each other. Like, we both knew we were joking, but it got serious and we got really emotional and we almost broke up over it because we got real in that moment because we were both trying to pretend like we were mad at each other and we actually got mad at each other. Right. You maybe pull on the things about the other person that actually sometimes upsets you and then suddenly you've escalated things beyond your intent. Absolutely. So uh, to your point, safety is paramount. You know, uh, you have to trust one another to, to the point that you are okay with being vulnerable. Knowing that they will be there for you to, to congratulate you on that. Again, you know, if you're, you get to a scene that you make everyone at the table cry, they should be like, that was awesome. That was so awesome. But let's all take a minute, you know, and not just be like, oh, you're fine. And then I want to talk about the goofy stuff my character's doing. And then you're just kind of sitting there wallowing in whatever emotion you were in. And then, then you're expected to jump back in and be quippy five minutes later. That's mm-hmm. not how it works, unfortunately.
1: No, it's really not. Like, that's just literally not how the physiology of
0: human emotion works. And again, I'm not trained in that, but I've I, I watched enough movies and enough behind the scenes to, to know that that's not how that works. So, mm-hmm. uh, ignorance can still be trained, I guess. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then, sort of, that's the last thing that I will talk about until you say something that makes me think of something else, because that's how this works. Uh, and I kind of touched on this before, but when I'm playing in an actual play, I am much more likely to make decisions in character that I think make a more interesting story or help serve the story. I think that we're all trying to tell, which if we communicate, I should know that mm-hmm. currently in Rot iron, which has been on hiatus for a while. Caleb's got some life issues. He had a baby recently. Uh, hopefully we'll get started back on that soon. Army plays a very sort of simple, naive character. So there's a lot of times where something will happen. And as Michael, I will say, Oh, we all know this person's evil, right? Like we're all agree but in the, you never heard that in the audio, but Army's all trusting, And I know that that's a bad thing for Army to do, but it's so much more fun because I keep getting Army in these terrible positions. And, you know, she walks out by herself alone at night. I know there's monsters in the forest because I can see the minis, or I know that kale has been talking about, you know, make sure you know your combat stats for tonight. But Army doesn't know that. So I'm gonna make decisions that I think make the story more fun. And I found that I like the game more that way I don't try to win by beating the obstacles as fast as possible. I try to win by having as much fun as possible at the table.
1: Right. And again, there's different ways that people have fun. And I recognize like overcoming challenges as being a a valid method of engagement and fun. But it's also not the way that I primarily get entertainment. I like to put myself in really difficult positions I played uh, for a long time in a game a character who was essentially a moody teenager who would, at any given opportunity, use the vast amounts of cosmic power granted to him to do the worst possible, most selfish, (laughs) awful thing in order to put himself in a bind. And that was... That's just my nature as a player. That was something I just did at a process-oriented game. But it's also... Very important that, for example, being aware and having, if you need to, conversations like failure isn't actually like a fail state in this case. That can be desirable. Drama is born from conflict. Also, I promise you that as your GM, I'm here to help tell an interesting story about your characters. I am not looking for an opportunity to splat you and make you roll a new character because then the entire thing is kaput.
0: Yeah. I, there's that there's a level of trust again between the players and the GM that you've all talked about what the story is going to be and unless I've already told you that hey, your character is going to die halfway through season 1, maybe episode 9 if you know, you're keeping score, then it's not really We're not on the same page. I think that's going to show in the production. Um, I think, you know, if if you watch a movie or watch a TV show or you read a book, very rarely does the hero always win. They fail and then they have to pick themselves back up. And then the next time they face that challenge, they've grown, they've learned from it. And it's all the more satisfying when 600 pages into this trilogy of fantasy novels, the main character finally confronts the big bad person and defeats them. And you're emotionally invested in that success because you have lived with them through these failures. If on page three of that novel, they took out the bad guy, that's not a very good story. And it's only three pages long. Right.
1: And that's super, super important also because it builds both in the players and the characters, but also in the audience an emotional investment in people like underdogs that's just a thing that people like the the arc of the first two seasons of swallows involves a lot of recurrent failure it's not every time anybody does anything they fail but at a lot of these critical junctures there's a failure things aren't overcome which builds this ratcheting tension Anytime you see those people who messed up the party the next time, until finally they're overcome, and it feels like something momentous has happened. Like, there has actually been a a real important visceral victory, because you've had to pick yourself up, clean yourself up, get better, come back, and really do it. and. That's how humans are sort of wired to enjoy stories. That's why you know talk to Jim McClure about three act structure. The second act is just about having the tar beaten out of you the entire way through it.
0: yep, so here's my personal take on the underdog i don't know phenomenon. I feel like most people. Want to see ourselves as an idealist, idealized version. You know, we watch James Bond movies, super suave, always gets the lady or whatever, always wins. Uh, comic books, you know, we have these perfect bodies and all these superpowers. But most of us know in our heart of hearts that we are not those people and we will never be those people. So when we see an underdog, we sort of like, that's probably me. If I'm being honest with myself, that's who I really am. So to see an undergo- underdog succeed, it's sort of like self-affirming that, okay, I could do that, I guess. Right. You sort of
1: inhabit that character more than you are sort of projecting them onto you as you might with a
0: power fantasy. At least the that, again, that's my take. I don't there's no I have no justification for it other than I watch a lot of TV. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and frankly,
1: anytime I talk to people about narrative theory, people ask, like, oh well, like, how do I get better at it? The number one answer is consume stories. Like, if you suck enough stories into your vast and gaping maw, you will slowly begin to internalize them and what they mean.
0: Even if you can't articulate them, you just get a sort of an innate sense of, like you said, story. And for me, that's editing. Like I said, I have no training in any sort of editing, but I've been editing for six years, I do ninety nine percent of all the editing for our show, and I've gotten pretty damn good at it because I just I don't I can't tell you how to do it like I couldn't train someone else on how to do it, but I just have like an innate feel for what works and what doesn't. Which sometimes when we have bad audio, it's because it's r- broken and I don't know how to fix it mm-hmm. because it didn't work because it was supposed to work and it didn't. I don't know why. Right, and I'll say this: I am
1: more than happy to come back at a certain point, and listen to myself on shows if I have been doing something like this, a one-on-one conversation, an interview, what have you. I understand that the basic process of smoothing things out, taking out the long pauses, the ums, the ahs, leaves me sounding more or less like myself, but cleaned up and idealized. I struggle very, very much, unless I specifically know and trust the editor to go back and listen to spots I've done on actual play shows because I know how important the hand of an editor is in shaping something like actual play and how much what I feel works about my own stuff lives not necessarily in my direct performance but in the things I draw out of that and out of my players in the edit. Fair. So I always have a sense of dread where I'm like maybe this is the time I find out that I'm I'm not as good as I thought I was, and I've just been <laughs> using editorial magic to make myself sound It's good. all
0: alive. Yeah, imposter syndrome is real, guys. Absolutely. So I'll put you on the spot. Did you listen to our Satanic Panic actual play? I listened to bits and
1: pieces of it. That is especially because that was live streamed as well. And that did have some of my favorite, like interaction comedy beats that I've had in a game in years. There was some really good stuff that actually happened in that game that I felt super positive about. So there was not as much of a barrier because there was stuff that I already felt inherently confident about. And usually there are elements of a performance I feel confident about, but, like, the pun I pulled out in the climactic scene of that thing, for example, and there's just, like, a lot of stuff in build-up that I... I already had a sense for the structure of it that made me feel comfortable coming back and listening. But for example, even though I love the editorial work that James D'Amato does, I haven't listened to either of my runs on one shot just because I know James is a little bit looser with his edits, and I don't want to
0: go back and be like, Oh, you fool. <laughs> So, uh just, sorry. We just did GM masterclass. Uh, where Jim and I listened mm-hmm. back to the one shot. There were several times where we would like pause it and go, "Why was that left in?" <laughs> you know. Again, this was many years ago. James might be a different editor mm-hmm. now. He's still a great editor, but there were a couple moments where, we're like, yeah, that's something I would have cut out.
1: And I also know that his approach is demonstrably different than mine in terms of the process he goes through to edit, and that's fine he produces really, really good stuff. Oh, yeah. But there's stuff that I know that I'm personally self-conscious about that probably no one actually hears or picks up that I will go back
0: and I'll listen to and I'll be like,
1: James, why did you do me dirty, buddy?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, well, I will say again, back to the satanic panic, I feel like you were the MVP of that. Going back in editing, you had all the best lines and you still have one of the best lines I have. Ever had the privilege of being a part of. I won't spoil it in case someone wants to go back and listen to it. But Quinn was the MVP of Satanic Panic, especially I think in the third episode. There is a moment that just had me laughing out loud, like guffawing with laughter, and I loved it. So thank you for that.
1: Thank you. Um, that means a lot to me. And I will say that a lot of that was made possible by being in a space where vulnerability was okay. It was a very very silly game, but I think most of the stuff that was successful about my character was tying into real emotional pain that that character felt and not having that exploited or, like, put down upon by the players so that, like, so much of that was made possible by the space and the trust that I had. So, also, I'm a monster, and there was just a lot of puns that escaped me over the course of that thing, so... But yeah, that means a lot,
0: and... Gosh, it was a fun game to play. <laughs> it was. It was really, really good. All right, so we've been on about an hour and a half. We're getting kind of long, so I want to kind of wrap back around. Is there anything from a player perspective, someone who has maybe played before, but now their are GMs, like, hey, let's do a podcast, because everyone else is. Any sort of, like, last words of wisdom that you would say, this is something you should do or you should know or should think about before you get started to make sure that you're as good as you can be to an audience?
1: Yeah, so... I will say basically two things. One, just like I was saying earlier with internalizing stories, it doesn't hurt to listen to some actual play, especially stuff that is in the same vein in terms of performance, aesthetic, or goals so that you can see what people are doing. You don't want to be a copycat. Chances are, if you're making a show and you just go and you're recycling jokes and bits and stuff from other shows, you're probably not going to get anywhere. But Analyze how things work and why they work. And second, and this I think is just super, super important, do everything you can to make sure that you feel like everyone's on the same page. And anytime that's in question, do not be afraid to stop the flow and ask, because the flow isn't what's important, the product is.
0: I would agree with both of those things. And then for my last thing that I would add is be proactive both as a player and as a character. In a lot of the games that I participate in at conventions, the players are very often reactionary. The GM sets the scene and it says, what do you do? Or this is all happening. How do you react? Which is fine. But I like to try to be more like, I'm going to create the scene. I'm going to determine what's going on. And then the GM will let the world react to me. I find a lot more pleasure in that as a person and as the player, same thing. Don't don't just be laid back. Be like, where are we going? Why are we going there? How can I get my character involved? How does this serve the story? So don't be afraid to voice your opinion. But at the end of the day, it's still an opinion. You're part of a group. You know, Once a decision is made, go with it. Go forward and do your part.
1: Absolutely. Proactivity is super, super important, actually. That's a really solid point you bring up. Because, yeah, if you have people just sitting around not doing anything, no one's going to remember your characters. And a lot of the time, drama works best when propelled by the characters. So you don't want to have that moment that sometimes you might have at a regular table where you stop. And everyone slowly turns to look at the GM where you're like,
0: the scene's over, but I don't know what happens next. Right. Where do I we don't go? What, what do we do? do? Yep. Uh, and then this is just one final tip. I listen to a lot of actual plays, partly because of research. You know, again, I like to listen to what other people are doing, maybe pick up techniques. We have a network that we often invite quality shows into. So I'm always on the lookout for a good quality show. And one of the very, well, the first thing that turns me off is bad audio. But that happens. Everyone has bad audio to start. I'm, I try to get over that pretty quickly. But if the first 10 minutes of a show is eight minutes of the GM talking, I'm probably not going to listen to to minute 11. I do not like it when the GM starts off with a very long introductory monologue. I want like the first thing to be like, You're being chased by someone, what do you do? I want the players playing fast. And that's a Michael preference. Not saying anything's wrong if you do it differently. But for me personally as an audience member, I want the players engaged immediately and then tell me what the DM was going to say, you know, intersperse it into into between scenes.
1: Yeah, definitely. I can think of a couple occasions where I've violated that rule for better or for worse. But generally speaking, as a GM, when I sit down to run something, I try to rush as, not rush, but get as quickly as I can to the what do you do moment.
0: So listen, I'm sure I did the same thing. Don't be wrong. I'm sure I've violated all the time. But if you're someone who's interested in actual plays, you're listening to them, you know, figure out what you like. And then try to emulate that in your own show or just even at your own table because it's still, I, I said this in the GM Masterclass, one of the things that I've changed my style as a DM is I'm trying to make the game more fun to listen to. And a lot of the choices I make for that end also make it more fun to play. I think those two things go hand in hand very much so. So even if you don't particularly like actual plays, they can still be very valuable as a teaching tool and as a learning tool to go, okay, I didn't like what the DM did there, but oh, I did like what the DM did there, so I'm going to incorporate those into my games. Listening to actual plays,
1: before I started producing one myself, radically changed the way that I approached a lot of elements of running games and has made me a lot better. And then going and producing one of my own and then continuing to listen to other stuff you just keep picking up tools that work for other people that you can try to integrate into your own style because development in a vacuum tends to be slower so don't be afraid to reach out and listen to the things that exist that can help you grow faster
0: absolutely and go to conventions like a catacomb november 9th 10th and 11th in dayton ohio all right so quinn thank you so much for your expertise and your knowledge. It's it's a pleasure always to get to hang out with you and spend time. Where can people find more of your work if they want to spend more time with you on the internet?
1: Uh, Thank you. Uh, It's always a pleasure to be here. Like I said, up at the top of the show, you can find me on Twitter at MonkeyPieQuinn. That is M-O-N-K-I-P-I- Q-U-I-N-N. You can listen to my show, Swallows of the South, a proud member of the RPG Academy Mm -hmm. Network every Tuesday. I am also on a Riverdale Review podcast, River Do's and River Don'ts, with (laughs) Rob Stith and a soon-to-be-announced third co-host
0: Ooh!
1: on the soon-to-be-released Tales from Thetis podcast on the OneShot Podcast Network and about a half-dozen other things. I'm a very busy person. Go to my Twitter and you can find that, despite what I might sound like on this episode, I'm mostly just sort of faking it i'm mostly just kind (laughs) of running by the seat of my toes there's a lot of theory here don't want you to think i'm perfect a lot of it's just shooting from the hip
0: oh there's a lot of it that i i realize i did it wrong and then i consciously decide not to i still do it wrong next time but i'm aware of it and over time i hope to slowly make gradual progression towards what i'm trying to do exactly theory is something that is to be
1: like looked at as Hopefully someday you might get there
0: in the meantime, learn from your mistakes (laughs) and just try to have fun and have fun. That's right. Uh, So as for myself, again, you can find me at the RPG Academy on Twitter and pretty much everywhere else. If you want to send an email to the show, that's the RPG Academy at gmail.com. If you have any thoughts, opinions, agree, disagree with anything that Quinn and I have said, please let us know, hit us up on Twitter and respond. There's, comment section at the end of this episode on our website go there leave some comments uh we love to interact and you know very well we might have said something that was really dumb and you say something go oh yeah you're right and then next time we'll try to integrate that or we can have a dialogue and maybe both of us will be better for it so Mm -hmm. quinn thank you so much everyone for listening thank you for so much for being here this has been michael
1: this has been quinn
0: and we'll see you next time